Well, thanks for coming back. <laughs> Curious to know, upon our second read of this book, because this is take two, really, of a, of a not long book, honestly, not, not long, if there was anything that um, maybe was different on second read to you, or um, you thought, hey, um, I don't know about different, but I, I really saw this again in terms of what this book is doing for you, if that makes sense. <clears throat> well, I was glad to see the positive side of it. You, you felt like this side really did show you the positive. W would you say more about um, particular positives you drew out? Well, um, I found what, what the... What he said, they're very helpful. Uh, I don't know that I have any particular idea other than the fact that uh, it reminds me that God is mystery. Mm. And that, uh, you know, uh, what, uh, I, and we need to keep God before us, but God gave us life to enjoy, so we should not have any reservations about that, but we need to be careful how we interact with other people because we are accountable for what we do. Yeah. That's very well put. <laughs> I, I, it certainly goes from one extreme to the other. Either you look at it and you go, you know, I think I'll slash my wrist and just <laughs> give up. Because uh -huh. <laughs> I'm going to die anyway. Yeah. But then on the other hand, there, there's no doubt that the riches and, and, and if you put your trust in God, and I will, I will survive, and I will get through this, and He'll help me do it. It's, it's that it's very reassuring too. Yes, and I think that's probably the point. I I went back after I read this and took a look at the, the, the definition of vanity, mm -hmm. and there are two definitions that are totally opposite. Right. And I'm, I was trying to reconcile reconcile that with fear, and I see I see hopelessness. I see some hope. Um, I see when when he says God means for you to enjoy your life. Then I look at homeless people and I say, Well, that can't be right. So um, we're left with a lot of contradictions in my brain that I'm having problems with your time. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm having problems too in so far as uh, God does everything and yet we have the situation at the border mm -hmm. and these poor people are suffering terribly. Yeah. And I, you know, I have to say, you know, God, <clears throat> I'm grateful to that you will, you know, or uh, yeah. I don't know, I, I struggle with that and sometimes I get very angry with God but then I say to me, who do you think you are getting angry with God because it's okay it's got to be chores yeah. he, he talks about what I interpret as predestination and then he yes. says no but not yeah. but not yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. yeah. well we have a path to walk the question is, if we walk it well, then yeah, we can count on the predestination. But if we don't, then it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. and, and then you think of your your humanity. 
you're you're gonna mess up uh, because you're just you you because you're you. Um, so yeah, there's no doubt that it's it's that back and forth. But but very at the same time, there was deep reassurance and and you know and once up there the Syrian. But I I guess I never really felt seriously doubtful. But you, it does come into your head about. Um, it's, it's a beautiful read, I think. I think it's just quite, you can do it several times and stuff. And stuff. I'm sorry, but they're going to interrupt you Oh, no, no. I was just thinking that, you know, rereading it um, kind of, to me, what I kept getting after the first time was, the word meaningless. Everything's meaningless. Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. You know, to the point of, I don't know about slip my wrist, but why get out of bed? Because <laughs> what's it going to matter? Yeah. You know, it's all meaningless. And I know um, when, but as I reread it, and I, the first time through, I started to pick out things that I thought were positive, and then I was like, no, I'm supposed to, you know, my, my poor ADD brain just goes everywhere. But by the end of this time, I felt like, for me, the everyday and mundane things make life meaningful. Mm -hmm. The relationship I'm in with different people every day are what can be meaningful. Um, I'm not going to have my name on a plaque. They're not going to make a statue out of me, and that's fine. I wouldn't have the time to sit still for one if they made it. But I can encourage a child. I can encourage my daughter who's not a child but struggling with having a new baby in the house. Mm -hmm. I can, you know, I can also discipline a child um, and, and hopefully have that be meaningful, you know. Um, so as I was reading it the second time and he would, meaningless, meaningless, I was kind of like, Dude, take a breath. You know, like yeah. There, and and I think if it is written from the perspective, if it was written, and I don't know what the perspective was personally, but of this is what matters in the world. This is what makes you somebody is being wealthy and wise and having it all and being a, you know, a majority of us are not going to be that person. So if that's the only thing that makes life meaningful, then, and I'm probably going way off track here, but then that would mean a majority of the people God created, their lives weren't worth anything. And I can't believe in my heart that that's what God, and I know, he says, we can't pretend to know what God thinks or wants or will do. Yeah. But I don't think God is intended for anybody's life to be meaningless God made us, in my mind, to live simply, and we as humans have complicated the heck out of everything. We've set the standards as to what's acceptable and what matters and what's meaningful and who's more important and who's less than. We've done that. God, you know. So <laughs> it was for me, by the end of the second time through, I didn't feel so much of the whole meaningless stuff. Did any of that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. I think the one thing that came out for me after reading it once or twice and talking to Tim about it is that uh, I became more aware that at certain stages in your life, especially you know, being at the stage we're in, where it's like you know the end of the last last part of the fourth or whatever, however you want to say it, as you go through the different stages. You, you experience all of this and you see it and feel it and experience it differently. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then, it's kind of interesting at this stage, looking back on the past stages and going, hmm, that was really pretty, you know, it was not always easy for you to do it. It's like, oh gosh. But, but there's this thing. It's amazing how incredible, whatever that we were created in this fashion and that we could grow through those places. And, and reflecting back, it was kind of like, mm, it's, it is awesome. I mean, that's an overused word, but it's an awful feeling about that. Well, and the teacher talked about having all these experiences and <clears throat> making sure he went out and experienced all these things so that he could know really what was better and what wasn't. And I think age and perspective. Uh, I look back and think about stuff I stressed about mm -hmm. over my children. And I'm like, for what? Yeah. For what? And so I watch my daughter now who's raising young children. And I watch a lot of the parents here and I want to say, it's okay. Yeah. You know what? It's okay. It, it's really okay. Um, don't, because, and it is, it's perspective and what you've experienced. For me, for me, for me. Yeah. Well, it's, if it's okay to follow that thread um, a little bit more, I, I, I think um, one way to read this book, I think, is nihilistic. Nothing matters. There's no point. But I, I think when you said, like, why get out of bed in the morning, I think the author would say, because if you laid in bed, life would be even less enjoyable. Cause exactly. you Because exactly. that's, like, I, I think actually what the author would say is there's a time for laying in bed. But if that's all you did, like your body would, right. would hurt. You would right. get bed sores. Right. You wouldn't right. enjoy the food you eat. Yep. So there's a time to get out of bed and move around, and, but don't do that all the time. Like you've got to rest, right. you know? Um, and I, it seems like one of these thoughts he's, he's got about meaning, and maybe this is just what I'm, what I'm bringing, but um, I, I think this is kind of what we're saying is that... Um, maybe we really often mislocate where meaning is. I think a lot of times we think meaning is in doing yep. the big things. Yep. So I can stand back and say, hey, you know, I was part of this thing that started this new great school. But at the end of the day, I think what he says is that um, you have no assurance that school is going to outlast your time there. Mm -hmm. Or, hey, I was part of curing cancer, but you have no idea what's going to be done with the medicine you invented. Right. Perhaps right. it will be turned, I mean, just like with atomic energy, maybe it will be turned to destruction. Yep. And... Um, on these big picture things, I mean, I guess the bullet point in my head is that we focus so much on outcomes with meaning mm -hmm. and that outcomes are beyond our control. And, and, and maybe that doesn't mean don't focus on anything. Maybe it means focus on <coughs> inputs instead of outcomes. 
So I'm just thinking about my kids. The biggest stress I have is what they'll do. What they'll do. And, and obviously that matters a little bit. Um, but my older kid has really um, brought the lesson home that I have no control over what he will do with what I give him. The thing I control is what I give. Exactly. And, and, and you certainly can't control what he thinks. Yeah, and, and as a result, I mean, I think, I, think I, I, um, I think what he's going to do with what I give is always important to consider, but I can't base my joy or satisfaction on what he'll do with what I give. And not just to talk about kids. You know, there's this age-old problem of there's somebody with a cardboard sign asking for money or help, right? And um, in general, I think we can say, well, I don't want them to buy drugs or alcohol. I know that's a real problem, so I'm not going to give any money, right? And I think no matter what we give, whether it's food in a bag or a blanket, the truth is we have no control over what they'll do with what we give. The thing we're in control of is, do we respond in some meaningful way? And I guess there's times in which we say, no, I don't trust what you'll do, and we're satisfied with that. But, but maybe there's also this opportunity to say, okay, I don't want to contribute to an outcome of, of, of drug abuse or alcohol abuse or something, but I do want to contribute to you. So we consider the outcome, but that informs what we put in instead of us just walking away. And that's why we do the food bags. The truth is, somebody could take that bag and throw it away. They could try to sell it for a drink. <laughs> they could trade it for a cigarette. They, 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 they could, but having considered that money may not be the best help, I put something in instead of nothing. I think that's why we do the bags. And at the end of the day, I can't say I've made the world a better place by giving somebody a bag, um, but I can say I responded to somebody's need and I choose for that to be enough. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think in some ways the author's trying to say that. And I, I don't know that that means then that, hey, we don't hold people accountable for what they do. I, I think really it's just a way of, of finding different meanings so that, hey, if our kid does the worst thing that we ever thought possible, like they go to jail, that doesn't mean we were a failure as a parent or that we're not supposed to enjoy our life. I think we go back and we say, um, I gave what I could in the relationship, mm -hmm. and at the end of the day, these are the choices that they made. I don't know if that sort of makes sense. I, I was thinking about this book, particularly last week, and I, I really rethought it, and, and if it doesn't meander too much, you know, the, the first noble truth of the Buddha, I don't know if you know these, mm -hmm. is that um, this is this interesting word. It's not an English word, um, so it's kind of hard to explain express, but the first noble truth of the Buddha is that life is dukkha, um, which we usually say life is suffering, but that's not really a good translation. It's Dukkha means like there's something fundamentally off with the way we're living, and so like I think the good anecdotal way to express it is that um, if you've ever been to the grocery and got a cart and one of the wheels didn't work well. So imagine taking that same cart and pushing it backward. So, so if we took that shopping cart right there 
and, and all the wheels work fine, but we, we pushed on the front end. Like, it just isn't right. It, you can't steer it right because it's made to be pushed from the bar, you know? So steering is a little bit backward when you push from the front. And imagine a clogged wheel. Life is like that. <laughs> and the reason for that, says the Buddha, is um, the cause of suffering is desire. It's what we... It's not life itself... It's the way we perceive and interact with it. Uh-huh. So the way that we get rid of our, our dukkha is by getting rid of our misperceptions of life. That's the third noble truth. And the fourth noble truth is we do that by following the Eightfold Path, which is really um, cultivating right speech and right action and right etc. Right. So in some ways, I think this book is sort of saying... Sometimes we associate meaning in life with the wrong things, which might be why we often find life to be so meaningless. Absolutely. (laughs) Because when it's all about outcomes, which we can't control, we're always chasing the wind. But if it's about things we could control, like what I put into life, well, we can find meaning there. Of course, those are very small things, things as small as enjoying the meal I'm going to have, yeah. having a companion, putting my energy into what I do. I mean, one, there is a statement that when you work, enjoy your work yep. and work hard, you know? Um, not because you'll change the world, but because you'll change your experience of the world. I mean, I wonder if that's what he's... Hinting out. Yeah, I, I did a lot of thinking about this because in my, I'm a great grandmother. Just have a baby. My grandson had an out of wedlock baby, which mm-hmm. was not something that. And my daughter is pretty much just. Virginia didn't happen, and I just. And there's nothing I can do because it's really none of my business. That is, it's been the hardest thing. Uh, and Lisa said, my daughter says. Mom, Tina and I did fine. You were a single mama, and we're fine. And that, that's all that matters to you, that should matter to you. It's, uh, yeah, I haven't met this baby. It's really, conf- this, this really just kind of put that into a lot of turmoil. Where is the beginning and the end of what your, that response, it's not my responsibility, but I tend to want to somehow be responsible for this mm-hmm. child. If you think you have no control when your child is 17, wait until the grandkids come along because you really have no control. Well, my oldest grandchild is the one at 27. Mm-hmm. He had this baby. It's, um, wow. And, and this just really, this is the first time, because I don't even really know who I'm talking about mm-hmm. these strangers. But we're not strangers. We just don't know each other well yet. (laughs) But there's nothing strange to life. In some ways, I think that's what the author is saying. As strange and as as isolating as life often feels, it's actually very unifying. Because even though the circumstances are different, the quality of feeling isolated (laughs) is very common. But but yet, on the other hand, as we talk, we have had really... Come to we have a good life together. God has been very gracious to us. 
so you guys remember to say thank you for that. Um, for, so it, it's been, this has really tossed me into a, a little bit of a, it's, it's been good. Yeah. There, uh, he made a very good point in there in that there is no, re you don't have a relationship with God in this book. Um, it's like he's there, but he he is not going to interact with you. Mm -hmm. it just he's there, he's in control, and he's going to reward you, punish, but you don't really have any. You you can't have conversation with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does seem like his description is that God is sort of in the wings of the production, you know? And, and I, I, I hope it's helpful to say, I have that experience in my life quite a bit. <laughs> now, I've had other experiences where God's on stage, you know? But usually God's stage presence is pretty short <laughs> in the play production of my life, you know? So I think it's interesting to consider. Um, but why director-producer kind of? And, and you're the actor. <laughs> well, my question is, when he is remote, is that because he's choosing to be remote or because we are trying to be the director and producer? Um, and so, therefore, he's kind of letting us you know, I, I always, I was, from when I was little, and I don't know who instilled this in me, but I've always thought of God the Father. Mm -hmm. God the Father. So as I became a parent, it helped me to kind of put that relationship in context for me. And I know sometimes with my children, you do stand back. Yeah. And you go, okay. You're going to do this your way? Go ahead. I know it's going to cost me a trip to the emergency room, probably. Especially when we had boys, and I had no idea the kinds of things boys would do to impress girls. I was like, really? Was she worth that? Ten stitches in your head? But, you know, but it's, I, I mean, my question is when he's remote in my life, is that because he's choosing to pull back? Or is it because I'm like, I got this. You go take care of some other people, because... Well, I, and, I, and I wonder, actually, if we could ask a similar question about, you know, again, we often find things meaningless when we focus on outcomes. So I wonder if that's part of the deal, is we focus on God doing outcomes for us right. instead of what God is inputting. Right, right. <laughs> So we say, like, my cousin is sick, and I prayed... So there's no God because I didn't get the outcome. Instead of, what is God putting in? Um, and I think this becomes really hard when we think about this other, one of these other things we talked about up front. Um, is everything scripted? Is everything yeah. faded? Has, is, God the is God the author of the play and we're sort of puppets drifting along? I, I mean, I sort of think... Um, I don't know exactly if the author believes that. I sort of know I can't believe that. Because I, can. I, I can't imagine that children starve to death because God has a plan for that. Right. Um, in fact, I, I saw this meme um, on, on Facebook that sort of says this because this person 
talking to Jesus and the speech bubble says, you know, I can't understand why you let famine and war and child abuse and rape happen in the world. And Jesus response is funny I was going to ask you the same question like an interesting thing but I think I think then that does sort of ask us like well then what's what's the point of God if God doesn't change our outcomes which I think the book is asking what do we focus on outcomes or or inputs and I I do have this favorite author um, sometimes Anne Lamott she speaks like some really nice Uh, little sound bites And one of hers is that God is not there to take away our suffering, but to fill our suffering with God's presence. Um, Boy, at the end of it, there are times when I wish God would actually take away the suffering, Mm -hmm. the outcome. Mm -hmm. But God being present, I mean, I guess in some ways that's comforting. I would be more comforted if God would just take the pain away, but that doesn't seem to be what God's interested in doing. So so it could be that... um, that this production is really here for us to really consider where God is. Is God in the audience? Is God on stage with us? Mm-hmm. Did God write the script? Or, um, frankly, are we writing the script? Yeah. You know, I, I, I was a, a single mom. I've been raised by girls, by myself, just on one salary while I went to get my master's all this. One time, I, I was in this little two-bedroom apartment where the girls and I shared our, our life, and I was standing in the hallway, looked out, and there was a, a, we we were going through just a lot of, I don't remember what this stuff was, but the light was coming in through through this uh, porch window, this big window, and I just had this, this feeling that this too shall pass, and it just got like soaked in it, and I just, yeah, and it did. And things changed, and everything, you know, I look back on that moment, and I think, yeah, that too changed, and I lived through it, and survived it, and the girls were fine, and mm-hmm. that, so, and that was just this little itty-bitty moment, um, but I go back to that moment and say, yeah, it's, I think we have to put our trust in that. We don't. Mm. Oh, uh, when we pray, we always need to pray for outcomes. We never pray for interest. Yes. And I think, yeah, that's, yeah, that, I never thought about that until just now. Yeah, I, and I wonder about that. Because sometimes in Scripture, people do pray for outcomes specifically. Yeah. Um, but, but, I, but I sort of think, right, I mean, imagine that the Nazis were also praying to God to help them win the war. (laughs) So why didn't God answer their prayer? I mean, this becomes this interesting thing. God didn't do what I want. And um, I think the the real question is, does God really work like that? (coughs) Or is that how we'd like God to work? But at the end of the day, do we really want God to work like that? Because who gets their prayer answered? The The people who pray it the most, does God listen to the majority? to the right one, but what's really right? That the Cowboys win the football game over the Texans? I mean, we pray for stuff like that. Or God, take the cancer away. Well, I mean, did God give the cancer in the first place? I mean, I I think those are sort of good questions sort of for us 
to ask. And um, one of one of the things that you you had started out uh, with Tim that I thought was really interesting about these contradictions in life. And if it's okay, I want to introduce a couple of them for us to tease out or not. Um, and, and I'll just speak a really personal one. My my dad has Alzheimer's, and he's oh I don't know. He's probably four years in to his diagnosis, which means he's had it eight or nine years. And um, Alzheimer's is this really interesting disease. I mean, apparently it's the number one killer in America now, although like AIDS, people don't die from Alzheimer's, they die from things Alzheimer's does to you. Like you forget how to eat, you die of starvation. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the Alzheimer's that killed you technically, it's that you forgot how to eat. And, and AIDS doesn't kill anybody, it's the cold you got when you had AIDS. Um, and there are people for whom I've seen, they were, they were bright and relatively optimistic and positive, and as the disease sets in, you, you, you sort of see them become paranoid and maybe depressed and they can't remember who you are and you observe those things and they're really scary because it looks like the total loss of the person and and from the outside it seems like god there's so much suffering and pain going on um and then there's this other weird bit and i i, I knew this guy in my last parish who frankly and pardon my my friends the guy was an asshole his whole life and he got Alzheimer's, and then he was like a small child. Nice. He was yeah. so happy. I mean, he, yeah. he laughed all the time. He enjoyed living, and I, you know, I, I wonder if his kids felt cheated because, I mean, there was going to be no reconciliation with their dad, but dad was happy, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but for the first time in his life. No, because know, his brain was diminished. I, I, I worked for Jerry in geriatrics and worked with people whose parents had Alzheimer's. And one or two times the daughter said, this is the only first time we've ever had a positive relationship. You know, it's, and I'll just tell you about my own dad, uh, wow. without, without saying, I mean, it's hard when you use the A word, but like, I didn't know that my dad was abusive, but he was verbally close. I mean, at least I perceived comments that he made that way. So, um, you know, as a kid, interestingly enough, my dad had lots of negative commentary about how I looked. I was, I looked like a basketball with arms and legs, or I wasn't athletic, or I wasn't this or that. And I would bring home a test that was like a 98, and he would say, what'd you miss? Mm -hmm. And in his head, that was like a joke, but I didn't perceive it that way. I found that to be very abusive. Um, and so now that my dad's into the disease, interestingly enough, like the only thing he really says is like, wow, you look really good. You look really good. What are you doing? And you're like, you're so perfect. And it's like, I hear that. And interestingly enough, instead of saying like, oh, maybe that's how he's always felt, but he just didn't know how to say it. I usually think like, <laughs> you jerk. Like, why couldn't you have told me that when I was 13? That's when I needed to when hear that, yeah. you know? So I don't know like what the disease has done. And in some ways, like I have this very mixed feeling, like, you know, like kind of how dare you tell me that now? Because my whole life you told me these other things that frankly made me hate myself for most of my life. Not because of what you said, but I chose to take your lens and apply it to myself and I was never good enough. Um, so, so 
I, I mean, I think what I'm trying to say is um, Alzheimer's is just really complicated. Like, it's full of contradictions. In some ways, it seems really terrible, and in other ways, it just it is what it is. And, and, and again, I, I've seen... I don't want to say I've seen people enjoy the disease so it's okay. I don't mean that. I mean, it's just complicated. And I'm not really sure that it's as hard for the person who has it all the time as it is for the people who care for the person who has it. And then, in some ways, why should it be hard for the caretakers when it's not hard for the other person? Um, Case in point, my dad uh, likes to talk a lot about... Vietnam because he was drafted and he has a terrible he had these terrible stories and I'll tell you he tells stories that I know are not real I know they're not real they're real to him um, and he makes these claims about things that he did that I knew can't be true and as an adult here's my adult dad who formed me and I found myself saying that isn't true like <laughs> stop saying that yeah. and that doesn't compute in his brain so that interaction is really bad for him. I mean, at a certain point, objective truth doesn't matter to him. And honestly, I'm not really sure why it matters that much to me either. Yeah. <laughs> and that's part of this yeah. book. I'm pursuing straightening his story out, yeah. which he can't even do, and that's chasing the wind. Yeah. So what do I do? Do I say, hey, great story, Dad, change the subject? I mean, I think... This is what the book invites us to consider. How do we respond to people in a way that can be meaningful to us? I, I mean, I think this is yeah. good. Another one that's really tough, and I hope I don't sound like I'm totally insensitive here, because what I want to say is I, I, I don't think any professional can tell you this is the silver bullet for a crazy Alzheimer's story. I don't think anybody can tell you that. Um, do you just validate it? Do you change the subject? Do you say, no, that's wrong? And you, you know, again, what, 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 what do you do? I think the book invites that. I think the same is true about homelessness. Um, some people, I, I, and I, I don't want to sound cavalier, some people want to be homeless. They choose that. I, now, they probably choose it because of things like PTSD and mental illness. But sometimes... We look at a homeless person and say, how terrible your life must be because you're homeless. And that's not their experience of homelessness at all. In fact, if you put them in our house, it would be terrible. It'd be confining. It'd be full of stress. And I don't mean that, therefore, we should just say, well, you're homeless and you choose that and that's fine. But in some ways, we want to re- if we want to rehabilitate somebody into our life and they don't want that, that's chasing the wind. <laughs> How do we know when it's what? I don't know the answer to that. And what's the silver bullet for that? I, I, I don't know. But I am positive not everybody wants my life. And interestingly enough, I'd like to give everybody my life. <laughs> so that I can validate it. Well, I think we all want to do that. You know, you know every time we give to a charity or, mm-hmm. you know, we want to, we want their outcome to be what we want. We want it. And this is why people earmark donations. And I can tell you there's people in my church here that don't give money to the church unless it has a restriction in the memo. And a couple people, I'll tell you, don't give money to the general fund because we contribute to the diocese and they don't like the bishop. Oh, gotcha. 
And hey, listen, yeah. I mean, here's the, the bottom line, right? I, I work here and I'm not happy with all the things we have to spend our money on. Yeah. Even though I think we have to spend our money on some of that stuff, I don't know, I like it, you know? So, so what do I do about it? Well, I don't really earmark my money, I'll just tell you, I don't. Because uh, if everybody did that, we wouldn't, we just wouldn't work, you know? Yeah. It just wouldn't work. Um, and um, uh, maybe I've just settled for something I shouldn't settle for, but I mean, I think, I think what you're saying is homelessness is complicated, and Alzheimer's is complicated. It's really not always this terrible thing that we think it is, even though it's a terrible thing. Homelessness can be really terrible, but it's not always what it seems. I, again, I don't mean it's okay. I just mean it's really hard. And I, I think we don't live in a simple world, and I think this book is saying we don't live in a simple world. Absolutely. I, I, I had a similar kind of view uh, when I was younger. I was working, I, I was running food service for the state of Florida for the mental health hospitals. And this was in 1976, 77, the, the, the Mental Health Act had passed. And the big mental hospitals that had you know, 10 to 12,000 patients now only had two or three because they, wow. put up, they, they, they opened the doors and just let them out. Yeah. So, You're too young. I don't so, remember what it is. You know, so I, you know, and I had never seen a mental hospital before. And I went in and I saw these people and the food that they were eating. And I thought to myself, you know, we could do better than that. <laughs> but now, perhaps I'm thinking maybe. They were okay because they weren't quite. The word is kind of means safe, so maybe they felt safe in the mental hospital. It's a, it's a. There's such a broad spectrum for homelessness and people who are homeless. I. When I was growing up, we knew this guy that used to come through once a year. He was what I would call a hobo. He would ride on trains, he would travel around the country, depending on the seasons, and he loved his life, you know? He was homeless. Mm -hmm. But when I see a homeless child who's, you know, that, that's a completely different thing in my mind. Mm -hmm. And I think the same thing is true when, with, with mental illness. Um, or Alzheimer's, there's such a broad spectrum of what's going on there. I've, I've spent some time uh, with people in mental institutions too, and there was one woman, I, I used to love to see her, she was, they said, you know, completely crackers, but every day to her, in her mind, every day was Christmas. And she was happy and she was mm -hmm. loving and she would forget that she had already met you but she would have a big hug for you and spending time with her brought a lot of joy to my heart simply because she was so happy yeah and you know it's it's hard life is complicated i wonder sometimes like i said earlier how much of our suffering is what we've kind of caused, how much of our suffering is God not saving us from our bad decisions. It cracks me up when people blame God 
when they're dealing with the consequences of their own choices. Yes. Um, yes. Well, yes. And I've done that. Yeah. I've done that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, <clears throat> I watched... Uh, I have one little boy that comes in the morning, and we watch uh, all these different things about... He's a Carson. Yeah. He's very concerned about the environment. And so this morning we watched videos on um, different things that have been built in the last years to clean up the oceans. And we noticed that two out of the three inventors we watched this morning were surfers. You know, and I thought this is cool yeah. because surfers kind of get a rap as being sort of whatever. Pothead, whatever, <laughs> yeah. catch a wave, you know. But they saw what was happening in their environment. And, I mean, I didn't know. 13 billion tons of plastic get thrown Jeez. in the ocean every year. That's a lot of plastic. Plastic doesn't weigh very much. So 13 billion tons. And I think that <clears throat> when he mentioned that meme, it made me think of that. You know, God, why, why do you let our oceans get so polluted? Why are you throwing plastic? And one of the guys went from being, um, and this kind of spoke to me about this book. It made me think of this because he talks about chasing after wealth and how you'll lose sleep because you want more and more and more, yeah. or you're worried about protecting what you've acquired and who's going to get it and how are they going to spend it. You know, all my hard work, and I'm going to give this to my son who's probably going to run off and, you know. But he was a designer for a company that made things out of plastic. And he said, I reached a point one day at my job where I realized this is ridiculous. I'm creating things and trying to tell people we need them, and we, we don't. We don't need these things. And um, that's how we kind of got switched around to all of that. But I, I feel like, again, I've always held on to that faith like a child thing. Mm -hmm. And that's very hard when things are scary, you know, and complicated. Um, but I also think if we try really hard to find a bright spot, even if it's only like that big, you know, and, and we focus on that, it's, it's easier sometimes to get through. And I've experienced what you were talking about with that light and that warmth and that, um, and, and those kinds of things do reassure us, but it sure is hard sometimes. Not so much for me, and I'm not because I'm a wonderful person, not so much when I'm suffering. For me, it's harder when I'm watching someone I really, really love go through something. Yeah. And I, I can't, there's absolutely nothing I can do. Nothing. Nothing. Except be there. Except be there. And that's, yeah. to me, the hardest place to find that light, that, you know, bright spot is... And that's when I have to realize what it says in here. I'm not in control. The only, the only other bit flip side of that is when, when you're the one that's there, when you have someone else that's there for you, you really, really cherish that support. So you have to remember that right. you're giving the support to. 
No, I, again, I think the important thing to remember is there's not one subject when we study the Bible. The Bible is an opportunity for us to enjoy life, <laughs> which is, which is uh, you know, multiplex. I, I, I was looking to find this verse while you were, while you were talking because you, you, what well, you were saying was bringing up something that I'd read. Um, I listened to the podcast from last week and I wrote down that what you said that it was an African saying. Oh, God created us because God thought we'd enjoy it. Enjoy it. Yeah. All right. That's all I got to do is enjoy it. You know, that's cool. I mean, it's hard. I think we get in our own way a lot of the time. You know, one time when we do homeless bags, you know, we have them in the car. And one time we handed one to, to to a man and my phone fell into the bag. And as soon as I gave it to him and we drove away, because, you know, the life changes or whatever, and we moved, drove away, and I thought, oh my God, Tim, my phone fell into his, the homeless bag. So I opened it up to check to make sure I had everything else. And the phone fell in, and so, and he was standing in the middle of the highway going, come back, you know, yeah. he did. I, yeah. I, I, was, I went back, we exited, we turned around, came back, he ran under the bridge and went to the other side, and he pulled out the phone. You know, he could have taken that phone right. and just taken it, sold it. He would have made some cash. Mm-hmm. I guess the, the point is simply that they, the homeless people, whether you're homeless or whether you have, live in a mansion, or, you're still just basically a human person who has feelings, who does rights and wrongs, yeah. and good and bad. And I, and I think that's part of the complexity. Homeless yes. people aren't bad. No, they're people. No, they're Rich right. people aren't bad. They're right. people. Yeah. And some of them are really selfish and cruel yeah. regardless of what they have. And exactly. I know mentally ill people that, you know, it seems like they're suffering and yet they also seem like they're happy. So it's, I think that's part of the complexity. And I'm not being dismissive, but it, it seems like the author, I don't know if you noticed this, um, I want to read the same verse in two different translations about what we're supposed to do about that. Um, in my, I'm reading the um, NRSV, and this is in 11, chapter 11, verse 2. Divide your means seven ways or even eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. So I read that, and I thought, okay, he's saying diversify your portfolio. Don't just invest in stocks. But when I read this week in the message, which is a different translation, idiomatic, same verse is translated this way. Don't hoard your goods, spread them around. Be a blessing to others. This could be your last night. <laughs> now, that to me is a completely different translation. Yeah. But this, the, t- the second part is really interesting. Be a blessing to others because this could be your last night. Instead of it saying, protect your goods by diversifying your portfolio, this translation is saying, because life is short, share. <laughs> Which is really, really interesting. And so it makes me think about these complicated issues that we've just mentioned, like homelessness and and to be honest it's i don't know that we can control the outcome of homelessness but i know we can input into um, the symptoms of it and the causes of it so the truth is i think nobody has figured out how do we solve mental health issues but i think we can put effort into that so that people have at least choices People have stable schools to grow up in, hopefully reliable food sources, 
because um, having you know abuse and and uh, unreliable food obviously creates a world mentally where homelessness is a more likely option for you later. So if they had all the stability and then they choose to be homeless, then they really did choose it instead of their abuse choosing it for them. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. Um, again, I don't know that that's an answer because I think the book says there's not easy answers. Otherwise, we'd be we'd be living in this interesting place. You know, there, the book makes this other really good claim: God made us upright, we messed it up. Yeah, <laughs> that's an interesting bit. And maybe part of the way we, we messed it up everything. is that we focus on outcomes instead of yep. here's what I'm willing to put in, and I'm going to choose to enjoy putting it. This is an interesting time of year to be doing this because I've been hearing, yeah, and I, I love the moms that come in in the morning. But they're all talking about having the perfect Christmas. Yeah. And I'm like, enjoy the steps along the way. You know, they are going to be so gutted. Yeah. If that present doesn't come on time. Or the turkey doesn't come out right. Yeah. Or aunt so-and-so can't come. It's going to ruin Christmas. Yeah. And I've been there. I've, I, you know, I've had that, oh, this is, everything's got to be, you know. And that's why... Like in our house in the last few years, and we're trying more this year to focus on Advent uh-huh. this time of year um, and, and do things to prepare. And, um, but it's just interesting to me because it's, it's the outcome. It's all this brouhaha for one day, which really it isn't just one day. Um, and we do. We want everything to come out just right. And, and if anything's a yeah. little off, then it's all a waste. Well, for what it's worth, I had somebody ask me about, like, why can the seasons be hard? And this ended up being an article in the Galveston Daily News. And um, yeah, I saw that. The, the, the thing I chose to, to think about was the difference between happiness and joy, yep. right? Which is that happiness is really dependent on circumstances. Like, this must be the best Christmas ever. And that's measured by... I got the bigger gift. I got exactly what you wanted. And if I didn't get that, then then it's not happy anymore. Whereas joy can handle disappointment because we've we sort of chosen um, what that looks like. And, and I was talking to John a couple of weeks ago, and I think I said this last week or last time we were together too. To me, the difference between a good meal and a great meal is not even the quality of the food. Yeah, it's my mindset in the company, yeah, you know, um, which is why wine and um, yeah. spirits taste way better at the vineyard. Yeah. And then you get them home and you're like, this is not as good as what I remembered it being. Yeah, because the context was really yeah. nice. Yeah. Um, so I, I, and I think this is an interesting thing. I know I'm kind of being big and sorry to shortcut on the sermon on Sunday, but... Um, the first virtue for Advent is hope. And in the video, the person said hope is absent in the book. And I think I think I think hope is absent in the book like we normally think of the word. So if you look in the dictionary, hope is like what I want. I hope this is the best Christmas ever. I hope the turkey turns out perfect. I hope that Barack Obama runs for president again. I hope that um, Beto O'Rourke wins the election. It's what I want. And if I don't get what I hope for, I'm disappointed. And really all hope means in that sense is I want. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there is, interestingly enough, um, this, this deeper understanding of hope. And, and the shortcut of it is really, I think, is that our 
Christian hope is not meant to be based on our external circumstances, but on the presence of God and God's ability to redeem all things. So that, you know, the last two Sundays in church, I think two different sermons um, have said, you know, our Christian hope is not in who wins in an election. It's in the power of God working through people. That's what we hope on, whether it's your candidate or not. So, you know, in the, in the, the prayers every Sunday, we don't pray for the president to, like, kick butt and be popular. We pray for the president to, to affect, it, affect righteousness and justice on earth, regardless of whether we like her or him. That's our prayer, because our hope is that God will work through people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I looked up in the dictionary that the older definition of hope is not what we want. The archaic definition is trust. And, and it occurs to me that we hear words like hope and we think, of course, I hope it's a, a mild winter. I hope it doesn't hurt when I get sick. But that that is actually very ordinary. And the point of church and virtue is extraordinary things, not ordinary ones. So it seems like one of the Advent themes is to, to dig down deeper and hope for more than what I want. <laughs> to hope at the level of, of trust. Now, I, I think there's a few ways we could choose to do that. I'll tell you, I know why it's so important for people to say everything happens for a reason. That reflects some trust that no matter how bad it is, God is engineering it for the greater good. I can't accept that worldview, although... I do think that the Christian hope is not that everything happens for a reason, but that this comes from Romans 10, 28, in all things God is mm-hmm. able to work for yeah. the good of those who yeah. love God. And, and I think that's a really important phrase for me. God is able to do it. The question is whether we'll work with God. Mm-hmm. So I don't think God gives us alcoholism, but I know that for the alcoholic, God is able to act redemptively. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean God caused it, but... God's able to find resurrection in, in trash piles. I mean, I just, I think that's the truth. And interestingly enough, I don't think God gives people cancer. I don't think that. But I, I can't tell you how many cancer patients I've met who said, since the cancer, I live my life completely differently. My cancer taught me right. how limited life is right. and how I need to invest. It doesn't always do that. It breaks people. It makes certain people hate life. Um, I think part of it is, how is it we respond? Life is meaningless, so what meaning do we make? I mean, I, 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 I think that's part of what this book's inviting us to consider. And, and so I think for us, like in Advent, what do we hope for? I hope my knee doesn't hurt when I run. I hope that. Is, is that, I mean, that's not really something very deep to hope in. Do you, do you know what I mean? Because that's something that really just... It only matters to me. <laughs> you know, I I had had thinking a lot. Obviously, aging for for me, like aging has bothered me a lot more than it has Tim. And my father was very wise about aging. I think, in that he reflected a lot on what he had been through and, and things he had worked his way through in life. And, and it's not so much it was he, because he was a very, he was a religious man, became over time a, a, a very faithful person. But it was about that God was able to help, was it helped him to get through a lot of tough stuff 
Um, and that I, I hadn't thought about that until, um, well, there's two things, reading some of this, but also my own struggle with aging. Yeah. And, um, and I don't know if other people go through mm. aging <laughs> issues. I guess, I guess everybody does, it's just talking to, just actually sharing that. So, um, and you, you know you're going to get older, but when you do, you go, oh, dear. <laughs> well, that kind of goes back to we live like we're never going to die. You know, we yeah. talked about that. We don't think. And, and when I first read the, um, that's, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. You know, for this is the end of everyone and the living will lay its heart. At first I was like, okay, really? It's better to go to a funeral than to a party? But I got to thinking about it, and I do know that when I have gone to funerals, it has made me reflect on how I'm living my life. Mm -hmm. Like, whoa, you know, that person was here yesterday and now they're gone. Mm -hmm. and, and I also know a fair amount of young people that have passed away too. One of them was only six, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's, it, it is a very good reminder. I personally never felt like funerals were actually for the person who passed away. They're really for the people that are remaining. Of course. So, you know, um, and I, I've not always been a big fan of them, but I will tell you that when I've gone, it has been... I don't want to use the word sobering experience, but it has made me think, mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that the people I love know that I love them. Because what you read earlier, tonight yeah. I could die. Yeah. You know, and we don't like to think about that. Yeah. But that's what this, and, and also I had to keep reminding myself that this was written by someone who did not, who was not thinking about heaven and eternity and what would come afterwards. This was, you die, that's it, you know? So I, I did finally kind of, when I first read that, I was like, well, that makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I get that funerals are important, but they're, you know, we, we, he had this many people at his funeral, you know, mm -hmm. 5,000 people. Can't. And but he's still, and he's knows? still dead. And no, still I know, dead. that's right. And that's part dead. of what this book would say, right? Yeah, so, he doesn't know what's going on. It, yeah. it, it's important for us to go through. I personally don't think funerals I would appreciate the mountaintops yeah. I've been yeah. on as much. If I had not been through the valleys, that's mm -hmm. all I can say about that. Yeah. Funerals are interesting in that they're for people that are living. That's right. Like, yeah, that's, right. That's why. Right. It, it's it just caught, it puts you in a place where you reflect and look at where you know where have I been and where am I going? What am I doing? Yeah. And someday that's where I'm gonna be just in that box. Yeah. 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 I apologize for leaving you all. You're okay. Yeah. That phone call that I had, I thought it was a friend telling me another friend had died, but the friend hadn't died. Oh. But we got into this kind of conversation, uh -huh. and so I couldn't get off the phone. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you're okay. You're okay. You know, the book sort of says this bit about hope, I think. Um, the line is that we work to feed our appetites, meanwhile our souls hunger. Yep. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting thought, isn't it? Well, and Jesus encountered that when he would talk to people about bread. Yeah. 
and they wanted physical bread. bread. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and what he was talking about was a completely different the bread of life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, interestingly enough, getting back to this idea, the the big problem with the Buddha is um, is this thing called Mara, which is like illusion. And the book sort of says pleasure can be an illusion, right? And and I and I think it doesn't mean not to enjoy because the book says enjoy life. That's the goal. But I think it's our task to relocate how what enjoyment of life is like. Is it the commoditization and ranking of things, or is it about sort of presence? You know, and this is where I think the book is really great about trying to cultivate wisdom. Um, if it's okay, one other thought about God in the book. <laughs> because God shows up just a few times. Um, some of the things that the author tells us is um, be very cautious in what you say about or to God, <laughs> right? And what vows you make. Oh, yeah. um, and and I, I, I just, there's this, I ended up taking this class when I was in seminary, that was probably way over my head. Um, but it, it was an interesting thing to think about, and it relates to the funeral comment too, um, which is that God is, we say God is completely unlimited, uh, all-knowing, all-powerful, in some ways inexpressible, right? God is bigger than our words can ever describe. Yeah. So interestingly enough, said this author, Anytime we use words to describe God, who's undescribable, what we've done is taking something unlimited and made it limited. <laughs> yeah, that's so the author says, all theology is blasphemy, which is a really interesting. <laughs> wow. And it must be true. That must be true. So much of it is all of it has to be human-made. You know, that's what the author said. But interestingly enough, on the other side, you know, there's this word guy, Wittgenstein, that talks about what words do. And, and um, there's this Catholic theologian, John Dominic Crossan, who's always, like, unsettling things. And, and he sort of says, you know, in some ways... Yeah. In, in some ways, he sort of says, we thank God for words... Like, we thank God for giving us language, but on the other hand, we couldn't understand or relate God apart from language, so actually, we should be thinking language for giving us God. I mean, this is the sort of stuff oh, wow. that he does, but all theology is blasphemy. I mean, that's this interesting bit for us to talk really carefully about God, and I don't think we do it because God needs it. I think because we do. Uh, I think our theology can get us into major, major trouble about what the meaning of life is, and it's very easy for me to highlight. I mean, I'm going to tell you, it doesn't matter which political party is doing it, but if somebody says, hey, God is behind the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, I think that's idolatry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Abraham Lincoln has this famous quote. Uh, somebody said, Mr. Lincoln, don't you think it's fair to say God is on our side? And, and Abraham Lincoln said, you know, I would never presume that God's on our side. I just hope at the end of the day we've been on God's side. Yeah. Um, really, really, you know, thoughtful, also blasphemy, but, but really interesting to, to sort of think about. And I, and I think sometimes we put God's weight behind what we're doing so that we can have some meaning. And I think the author's trying to say, not only is that a dangerous enterprise, right, but that's the epitome of meaninglessness.
having to say, God wants this to happen, so I'm doing it. Again, that's just another way we try to make meaning with an outcome <laughs> instead of putting, following God behind what we put in. I, I think. I mean, yeah. yeah, well, uh, I take that. Uh, I, I try to listen a lot to what, you know, God's guidance. And, and of course, God never comes and says, you know yeah. where we got that right. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I say, I think what I'm hearing, maybe God's leading. So I just go and pursue and check it out and see it. And if it doesn't work out, well, then it wasn't. I mean, but you got to go with something, mm -hmm. I feel like. And I was also wondering here about how that Ecclesiastes would be different if he knew about Jesus Christ. <laughs> Right. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't know if it'd be any different. But, but yeah, but he walked the earth, and he also gave teachings. Mm -hmm. So that's God giving teachings. Mm -hmm. But of course, now it's had to come through the human filter mm -hmm. for over two millennia now. So. Yeah. Yeah, and yet, I mean, I think the, this this really critical point about this is what I love about the Bible. Just to say again, is that. In some ways, this is like a, like a really different conversation voice, which I don't think voids what other things have to say. I hope it like enhances the conversation. I mean, Jesus said some weird stuff. Mm -hmm. Foxes have holes and birds have nests, and the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What on earth does that mean? <laughs> I got no idea what that means. It belongs in this book. You know, it belongs here. Oh man, you know when that lady, that lady pours $100,000 worth of perfume on Jesus and Judas says, you could have sold that and given it to poor people. I mean, I agree. I, that's a, that's, I agree. That's a lot of money. And I Jesus says, hey, sure she did a beautiful thing. Wait, what? Like, I thought Jesus would say, you're right. Here's the receipt for the oil. Go take it back. You, you know, I mean, um, God, the guy's vexing something. He, he, however good of a teacher is, that's a hard friend to have. Because no matter what you did, you, you know, I mean, there was always something right or better. You know, I mean, I, so I, I, in some ways, I think this is a really good, you know, that's a really great thing to think about. What would it be like to try and be friends with Jesus? Would it have been rewarding or would it have been vexing? I mean, I, I, this is a great question to ask. You know, It may have been both. And some people started and then left Yeah, and you know, this comes back to the Alzheimer's bit, right? If somebody says, you're perfect and you're beautiful, especially if you know that they mean it, what does that do for you? Does it scare you or does it go deep down in your well of your spirit and you say, thank God for that? Well, I never, I'll never have to worry about that. Um, I, I, I actually think you get to imagine it. I think you get to. Because I think the question is, what if the people who have hurt us the most came and said to us, you are beautiful? Maybe that's what he felt and he could never say it. And, and maybe, and maybe that's what God's going to make us hear and say to each other when we die. But the question is, if someone like that said that to you now, would you bristle at it? Would first, you? but in time I would accept it. Well, I have an experience like that. I did not have a good relationship with my dad. 
I was in the Air Force. I had just gotten out. I was in Illinois, and I was kind of looking for a job. And my dad had, re and the Air Force had sent all my records, you know, my e evaluation reports to my home. So my dad opened them up and he read them. Okay. This was on, on Friday, and Friday night he called me on the phone. I had never spoken to, to, to him on the phone. And he said how proud he was of me. And I said, well, it's about time. <laughs> okay? okay? Now, yeah. so I hung up, and the following day, my uncle called me, my dad had passed away. And I've never been able to come to terms. Mm. Yeah. And, and his relationship with his dad was very, very difficult. What a, what a, um, what a resurrection moment. And um, how we hold that so hard. I mean, again, I'll tell you in my own story, right? My dad was verbally abusive to me my whole life. And then lately he's been saying these things to me. And I just, how to hold them is so hard. Because if that's what he meant all along, why didn't he say it then? And I have a hard time weighing, like, what was he doing when I was a kid? Like, what was going on? Can I accept this now or not? And, and um, boy, I'm struggling into that resurrection. I mean, because I, I, I think that's what it is. This is like, and resurrection's not pretty. Keep in mind, Jesus has got like the holes in his body, right? I mean, they're, they're like gross wounds. And so they're, they're, they're full of sorrow and they're full of life. Um, I understand what you're saying because I'm an incest survivor. And if my father were to come and say, you know, I would, I, there's no way I would accept that from him because of what he did to me when I was a child. Yeah. I mean, so the, I think there's sometimes when, I think, you know, when a friend comes to you or something like that and says, oh, you know, you, you're such a beautiful person, da 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 you can, and they've always been nice to you, it's easy to accept that and it, it may build you up for a little while too. Yeah, yeah. But when it's somebody who has hurt you so deeply, and ruins your life in so many ways. Yeah. They don't care. Just you know, I'll No, and it, it means your father. Yeah, it's not just someone. Yeah. Well, and I think and this. You told me I would never be a beautiful woman. Yeah. And I believe that all the time. See, and so I think this is like you, 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 you were gone just to repeat this. There's two definitions for hope. The primary definition is, is definition is what I want. And the, the archaic definition is what I trust. Yes. And say so this is that hard thing, and I'm not, I don't want to make it trite, because again, abuse is abuse, right? Yeah. Uh, I hope in some ways, <laughs> I, I think I often hope on small things that my, my dad apologizes. I hope that there is um, my opportunity to say, this is what you did to me. You might I hope for getting even. And that's so ordinary. And then there's this other level that is, is full of sorrow in life about what I trust God is going to be able to do, if not now, later. I don't... <laughs> there's people I don't want to be reconciled with in heaven. I don't, I don't want to be reconciled. Mm -hmm. But I think the thing I'm supposed to trust is that God's going to do it anyway. <laughs> Because, yeah, sorry. I wonder, 
if a lot of the abuse is from fear. Because my grandmother was less than kind to my aunt. And she told me one time when she was pretty old that the reason that she never told my aunt that she was pretty and that she always, and, and she wasn't all that great with my father either, let me tell you, um, was because she, she said, I never wanted a conceited child. <laughs> and she looked back to someone yeah. you know, that she had yes. known, yeah. and she said, I didn't want my kids to be that way. And so the alternative was that my dad never thought he was worth anything, yep. and my aunt always thought, who was gorgeous, always thought she was not that attractive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what she created from her fear that she was going to ruin her children. I mean, the, the, this, this is that interesting thing psychologically, right, is that the, 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 the wounds that, um, that we bear usually come across in all that we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Well, we'll get to talk about that more next week when we talk about Job. <laughs> Thank you all for being here. We're going to read the first half of Job 